James chapter 1, and we'll be beginning in verse 1. When you're there, say, James. All right, here we go. James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, but like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God had promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, babe. That's my wife. Well, good morning, guys. Good morning. Uh, Pastor Jason and his wife are out uh, spending some time with family this morning, so I have the privilege and the honor to be able to speak to you this morning on a subject that doesn't seem like it's a big deal, but we're going to dive right into it. I'm going to keep my introduction really short because we have a lot to cover. going to do some correcting. Uh, but this morning, we're talking about something that's not a huge deal. It's just the will of God. Just the will of God. Um, my wife and I have spent a lot of time uh, serving in different churches uh, growing up. I received Christ um, in a church when I was about 14 years old. And then uh, I've been to about seven different churches all the way leading up to here from different denominations and different vibes and different feels. But regardless of where I've been, I've heard this question in every single church, whether it's from my own mouth or from the mouth 
of friends and family or other attenders there. What is the will of God for my life? What is the will of God for my life? And with the holidays coming up, we've got Mother's Day next weekend. That's a hint for you, for you husbands out there. Uh, we've got Mother's Day next weekend. We've got Father's Day coming around the corner. Some of you are graduating. Some of you may be asking yourselves as, as husbands, fathers, as mothers, as students, what is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? And so that's my introduction. We're just going to dive right into it. This morning, we're going to talk about what the will of God is not and then we're going to talk about what it is and then what that means for us. I'm going to be bouncing around a lot in this first chapter of the book of James, so please have your eyes on Scripture. So, firstly, what the will of God is not. It is not an agenda for your life. It is not an agenda for your life. Pause. For those of you who are type A, the very bottom of your bulletin says God's will for your life, or God's blank for your life is to blank. Once you to scratch, I know I'm ruining your day. Once you to scratch that out, my big idea has changed within the last 24 hours to something I think is communicated a little more clearly. So cross that out. We'll get to that later. First point, God's will is not an agenda for your life. God's will is not an agenda for your life. Look with me in verse 2. This might clarify a couple things for us. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The book of James, in its context, is written by James, the brother of Jesus, to fellow believers as a guide to how they can live their lives in a Christ-honoring way. Okay, So it's like packed full. This whole book is packed full of practical applications that we can use today as like stepping stones to walk a life that is honoring to Jesus Christ. And so with a book that is so profoundly helpful and full of love and of grace, why does James begin it with something so dark as, hey... You're going to encounter some stuff, and it's probably going to ruin your day, and maybe even your life. And he's talking about trials. I'm going to be referring to it in a different sense this morning. He's most likely referring to getting killed because you're a Christian, but I'm probably going to be referring to more things that we deal with in Western culture, like my headaches, and you know, I, I forgot to fill my gas up, and I ran out of gas. I think the application is the same in both sentences, or in both, in both terms. Um, so why does he begin this letter with something as dark and as dreary as when you face trials? I think this illustration might help a little bit. In the early 2000s, ABC released a TV show called Lost. Raise your hand if you've watched that show. All right, I've got some of you on the chain here. Lost, the premise of the show, for those of you who don't know, it's about a group of people who survive a plane crash. The plane crashes on this mysterious island. It doesn't take very long for some really weird things to start happening. There's like 40-something survivors, and they're like 1,000 miles off course, and nobody knows where they are. And there's a character in this series named John Locke. He looks like this. Look at that guy. He looks amazing. I love that guy. John Locke is rummaging around in the jungle, and one day he finds this metal door in the ground, this hatch. And John is different from everybody else on the island because he believes that the island has a purpose for him. He believes that the island has a will for him, if you will. And so he finds this metal door, this hatch in the ground, and he spends many episodes trying to open it up. And after so many failed attempts, he gets down and he, and he sits on it. He's, he falls down on his knees. He looks up to the sky, and I guess he's crying out to the island. And he says, I don't understand. I've done everything you've asked me to. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? I wonder if some of us are the same way. That in the midst of the chaos of our lives, in the midst of, of everything going awry, and, and we have this list of things that, that we want to put together, that we have an agenda for our lives, that maybe we sometimes assume is God's will for our lives, and then the poop hits the proverbial fan, and nothing goes well for us, and then we hit our knees and we say, I don't understand. What is your will for my life? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? 
If you've ever felt like that, you're looking for God's perfect agenda or perfect plan for your life, i got some news for you, man. You may not find that. You may not find this exact, beautifully listed out agenda, line by line, of you got to have the house, you got to have the boat, you got to have the fence, you got to have the husband who, who loves you or the wife who respects you, and, and the promotion and the good number in the bank account. Let me be clear, that, that list is not a list of God's agenda or plan for your life. That's just, a, that's just your list, man. That's just your list. And I think sometimes we have these lists and we stamp them with the will of God. Because God wants good things for us, so he must want me to have a $9 million house and the three promotions at work that make me half a million dollars and all of these other things. We'll get into the desire for those a little bit later. But I think ultimately we need to understand that the will of God is not an agenda for our lives. He says we will encounter suffering. And that is a great illustration and a way to show us that, that we will encounter things that do not go according to a plan that we have. So God's will is not an agenda for your life. And I think the application, of it, the application in the midst of that is this, is that oftentimes, oftentimes our perspective of God, God's will is the problem in our suffering. Our perspective of God's will is the problem in our suffering. That re- I don't care what you're going through. If, you're, if, if you've just gotten a phone call and, and it's a bad diagnosis or, or you just lost your job or, or your spouse is running around on you and, and you think that God's will is X, Y, and Z for your life and then one of those things falls off the list, our perspective is the problem in our suffering because our perspective is that God's will is an agenda for my life when it is not. When it is not. So verse 2 helps us out with that. We're going to bounce right on to the next one. Secondly, uh, firstly, it's not an agenda for your life. Secondly, it's not for your advantage. God's will is not for your advantage. And what I mean by this is that it's not solely for your advantage. God gives good gifts. We see that in the passage. But I think verses 9 through 11 will help clarify this a little bit for us. God's will is not an advantage for your life. Look down at your Bibles at verse 9 through 11 of James chapter 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, and so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In the midst of his pursuits. James is talking about the desire for wealth in this passage, but the implications are the same for for other things as well. Um, the problem that we see is, is not just money, right? Money's not the problem. You've heard it said over and over again from this pulpit. First Timothy makes it very clear that it's not money that, it's, that is the issue. It's the love of money. Let me jump into an illustration that might clarify things a little bit. Um, this is a picture of David Lee Edwards when he had his stuff together. And we're going to get to what happened to him in just a moment. This dude won the lottery. Let me just read this to you. This is insane. I want this money to last for me for my future wife, for my daughter, and future generations, said David Lee Edwards when he won $27 million in the lottery. Little did he realize these words would haunt him as it only took him five years, guys, to spend his winnings. Edwards bought a $1.6 million home and then another home for $600,000 nearby, just because. He purchased a Learjet, three losing horse races, a fiber optic company, and a limo business for almost another $7 million. Edwards would buy himself jewelry pieces for over $200,000, TVs, vacations, and even a Hummer golf cart for his daughter to drive around the community because she didn't have a license yet. It didn't take long for Edwards to develop a drug problem. 
It was reported that him and his wife contracted hepatitis from their use of drugs through needles, and him and his wife, and and they both had several run-ins with the police. Five years after his big win, David Lee Edwards had nothing to show for it. Kind of looked like this. At the end of his financial fame, he was left broke and alone in a storage container, sleeping in his own feces. Blech. Say gross. I think this is illustrating something beautiful for us, that it looks disgusting. But what James is doing is he's showing us that, that the pursuit of these things are what kill us. The pursuit of these things are what destroy us. And just like David Lee Edwards, man, he had $27 million at the tip of his fingers. He could get whatever he wanted whenever he wanted. You and I don't have that luxury. If you do, let's talk in my office. But in the midst of, um, what do we do in the midst of our lives, man, where, where we don't have $27 million to go ahead and buy everything that we desire or need or want to fulfill us? I think you and I live, live the same way. I think we live the exact same way that someone like David Lee Edwards does. That we assume from time to time that God's will is solely for our advantage. That, that it's the next thing, man. It's, it's not just the money, but it's the love of money. It's not just the house, but it's the love of the house. It's not just the promotion, but the love of it. Not just the number in the bank account, but the love of that thing. At, at the end of verse 11, that word pursuits, does it say pursuits in your Bible? In your ESV? Nod at me. Okay, yeah, pursuits. Circle that word pursuits. I did some research this week, and in the Greek, that actually translates as pariah, and it actually means purpose. That that person will fade, the rich man will fade away in his purpose. So just like David Lee Edwards, oftentimes we make our purpose the next thing. That it's not just the pursuit of money. These, that, that, that's okay. You, need, you live in America. You need dollar bills to feed your babies. But... The, pers- the purpose, making that the purpose of our life, that we constantly run after the next thing. And that is not God's will for our lives. God's will is not solely for our advantage that he just continues to give us every single bit of desire in our heart because oftentimes that's not great for us. If God gave you everything you ever wanted, you would probably end up fat, broke, dumb, and stupid, as Dave Ramsey sometimes says. Anyways, we're moving on from that. So, God's word is telling us here that the pursuits of these things are not good for us. They are actually pointless. And in the midst of whatever problems that we may be facing, uh, regardless of, of how we live life, if it is constantly in pursuit or our purpose is to gain the very next thing, and we don't get that, we need to understand that the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart, not our situation, not our circumstance. That at the heart of whatever problem or whatever trial we are facing, as James had mentioned, the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. Is a problem of the heart. Look with me in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The heart of every problem is a problem with the heart innately inside of us. So we've seen that the will of God is not an agenda for our lives. And secondly, that the will of God is not solely for our advantage. Thirdly, the will of God is not avoidable. The will of God is not avoidable. Give me just a second to clarify on this. If you are not a believer, you don't claim Christ here in this room this morning, just kick your feet up for a minute and let me talk to our believers in the room because this is just for the believer, that it is not avoidable. Look with me in verse 12. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Which God has promised to those who love him. I think oftentimes as believers, we we mess up from time to time. I mess up every day. Just ask my wife. We often stumble and we often fall as believers in the room. But I want to let you know that, that as a believer, if you love Christ and your desire is to know him and to be like him and to know him more, in those moments when we stumble and fall, thank God for grace, man. Thank God for grace. Romans 8.28 tells us that God uses all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's those of us in the room who call in the name of Jesus, who love the name of Christ and trust on his sacrifice and the empty grave, man. Praise God for grace. I think sometimes as believers, we can kind of view God's will as, as this thing that we have to stay inside of. Um, James McDonald wrote a book, I was reading a little bit of it the last couple weeks, on the will of God. And he was talking a little bit about how he grew up thinking that the will of God was like a black dot. Okay, So it was like this black dot that you had to stand on. And that God's will for everyone's life was probably ministry or missions or youth pastoring or some kind of life in the clergy where you had to get away and live like a monk or something. And so as long as you were in one of those four vocations, you were inside that little black dot, right? But if you strayed to the left, maybe you took a job at Burger King, or you strayed to the right, maybe you flipped that guy off on the highway, then you're no longer in the will of God. Can I just be honest with you guys? Believers and non-believers, that dot is bogus, man. That God's will, as we've seen, is not this agenda for your life that you have to stand inside of. It's not... It's not solely for your advantage that as long as you're standing on this tiny little black dot, all of these things that God has for you will come rushing into you. And thank God that it's not avoidable, that regardless of where we stand on this proverbial dot, God uses all things. God uses all things for his glory and for our good, for those of us who are called according to his purpose. I think sometimes, just like we said that if we think we have to stand on this dot and do something amazing like, like, uh, like preach every Sunday or, or, I don't know, man, do missions in Africa. Man, Pastor Jason has said this over and over again. Man, we need people on city council. We need more teachers. We need more people in local government working for MoDOT, keeping those potholes filled, man. We need people in the community to do these things because God will use the ordinary to reveal the extraordinary. God will always use the ordinary to reveal the extraordinary. He does it all through the scriptures. He does it all through the scriptures. The kingdom of God is like a rock show that's with laser lights up in the heavens. and there's a, It's not like that. The kingdom of God is like a seed. The kingdom of God is like a farmer. It's like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go and find the one. God will always use the ordinary in our lives to reveal the extraordinary. So if you're a believer in the room this morning, God's will is not avoidable because of grace. Because of grace. So we've talked a little bit about uh, what the will of God is not. What the will of God is not. And before we launch into what the will of God is, we're going to tie closely to the first chapter of the book of James, but I wanted to talk to you for a second about a translation that I discovered because I feel like sometimes we can speak churchanese in the room or churchlish. I don't know if it's bad to say one of the bad prefixes or whatever, suffixes. I'm not an English teacher. Anyways, um, 
I think sometimes we hear these words in church that we kind of glaze over. We assume that we know what they mean. And we assume that we know uh, that we understand them. But the will of God was something that I wanted to research a little bit. So blueletterbible.com, you can do it too. If you go there and check it out, the word will that is used in verse 18 of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And the same will that we see for like God's will, what is God's will for my life, that actually translates to, and if you speak Greek in the room, I'm sorry, thelema, I think is how you pronounce that. Um, and that actually translates to pleasure or desire. That God's will, as we've seen, is not an agenda. It's not his plan for your life, but it's his pleasure. It's his desire for your life. So as we go through these three points of what the will of God is, I want you to think in your mind that the pleasure of God is, the desire of God is. Okay, if you're with me, say amen. amen. All right, point number one of what it is. The will of God is pursuing you. The will of God is is pursuing you. You say, man, I don't believe in that joker upstairs. I don't know nothing about him ever pursuing me. Well, you're in a pew in a church on Sunday morning hearing from God's word. He's pursuing you. We're moving forward. Look with me in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I want you to grab a pen or a highlighter or something, uh, mark up on your neighbor's Bible and your own. I want you to underline that entire verse or highlight that entire verse, verse 18. Verse 18. Now that your eyes are on your Bible, of whose own will? Come on, it's nine, but you've had coffee. Of whose own will? Who brought us forth? He brought us forth, He pursues us. He is the one who comes down to us, and he pursues us. I think it's interesting, um, in the same way that we sometimes think that we know what the will of God means, um, we can kind of glaze over a little area in that verse of he brought us forth. He brought us forth. Um, This is going to be really interesting. I'll just leave it at that. So as this illustration, um, there's a, in Indonesia, every three years, there's what's called the Manin Festival. I was uh, watching National Geographic this last week, watching basically, uh, it's like a rendition. It's already up there, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically a rendition of, the, of, of planet Earth. But Will Smith hosts it, and he eventually gets to this town in Indonesia. Every three years, they dig up their dead, man. They pull their loved ones out of their coffins and they stand them up and they dress them. They change their clothes. They dust them off. They, on the documentary, they put cigarettes in their mouths, take selfies with them and stuff. It's nuts. It's nuts. You and I are like that. You and I are like, I was watching that and I was fascinated that these people dig up their loved ones and they say, we do this because it's as though they are with us. We want them to be near us. We want to remember that they're close. That's us, man. Not the ones who dig them up. We're the dead ones. Brought us forth from where? He brought us forth from death, man. By his own will, he, by his pleasure, he brought us forth from death. Really, really crazy. I'm doing this because I've seen him do it. Really, really crazy theological question. What can a dead person do? Are you sure? Come on, say it louder. What can a dead person do? Be dead, nothing, right? A dead person can do nothing. And that is where we are before we know Christ, man. So we have to constantly be reminded that first and foremost, the will of God is that he pursues us. The, will, the pleasure of God is that he is pursuing us. 
Ephesians chapter 2 puts it this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That the will of God pursues us. Just like some of you men, when you first met your, your wife, when you guys were dating and you saw her and you got that little twinkle in your eye and you wanted to pursue her. So you ran after her. Maybe she ran off and maybe that was great. Maybe it was bad and maybe she stayed. Who knows? But you pursued her. And in the same way that the village in Indonesia, they dig up their loved ones and they hold them closely, which I think is a little bogus. Don't go do that in the cemetery this afternoon. But it works as a great illustration because you and I were dead. We could do nothing. And he raised us up and made us alive. So first and foremost, before you ever think or assume that God's will is this plan, this agenda for your life, or that it's solely for your benefit, for you to to inherit stuff or to get gifts, or that you can ever get out of it as a believer, start with the fact that you know that God's will is pursuing you, man. And it started with your salvation. It started with your salvation. We We have to understand that he is the initiator. We are the responders. He is the initiator. We are the responders. And this all ties into his will, man. His will, his pleasure is pursuing us. And it starts with our salvation. Secondly, the will of God is protecting you. The will of God is protecting you. Protecting you. Look with me in verse 17. Excuse me. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Um, This is a picture of my wife and I, our daughter. Uh, This is Jessie Ray. Sometimes she sits up in her crib in the morning, kind of waits for us to come in the room. She just turned nine months last week, and she's just a big old ball of cute. We love her to death. But she's getting to the point to where she knows what she likes to eat, and she knows what she doesn't like to eat. So for breakfast, she gets fruit. For lunch, she gets a mixture of fruit and vegetables. And for ni- at nighttime, she gets mostly vegetables. Come nighttime, she's starting to get, uh, I don't want that veggies. Give me those fruits. Give me those puffs. But if we only ever gave her puffs, she would become a puff. <laughs> she would become a rice rusk if that's all we ever fed her. And like good parents... We often will hold things from her because we know that they're not best. And James refers to God here as the father of lights, that he gives good and perfect gifts to his children. Let me ask you something here. Good, not just good gifts and perfect gifts, but let me ask you something here. What if God's good gifts and God's perfect gifts for your life were far more than materialistic things and far more than your level or your standard of what good and perfect could ever mean. If you're tracking with me on that, what if God's good gift and perfect gift is to let you sit in the struggle for just a little bit longer to know that he is in control and you are not? What if God's good and perfect gift is constantly reminding you that you were dead in your trespasses and he is the one who pursues you and makes you alive together with Christ? What if the good and perfect gift is just Jesus, man? What if the good and perfect gift is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came down and lived the life that we should have but could not and died and rose again for you and for me for eternity. Good and perfect gifts. 
think God will often hold things from us because he knows what's best for us. And so sometimes we, we live as believers and non-believers constantly hitting our knees and asking God, okay, uh, it'd be great if you could help this check go through. Um, it'd be awesome if you could make sure that these things clear this month when in reality you probably made some poor financial decisions at break time, getting a couple hats and some big gulps. There are a few other things in our lives that we could probably get in line before we hit our knees and ask God to fix everything. Like we're an 18-year-old teenager going to our parents and only asking them for money when we want to go to the skate park. That's me when I was 18, by the way. <laughs> None of you have ever had an experience where your kids only come to you and ask you for stuff when they want stuff. You don't know what that's like. So, anyways, why would we do the same for God? Why would we run to him and only ever ask him for things that we want, knowing that he gives good and perfect gifts that are sometimes way better than anything we could ever ask for? The application for this is, is, is this, that we need to love the giver far more than the gift. We need to love the giver far more than the gift because in his will, he is pursuing us. He pursues us daily. He pursues us in his word by his spirit. He pursues humanity. He pursued Israel in the desert, man. He pursued, he pursued people all the way through to the end of time through the cross. He's protecting us by holding things and making sure that he knows what's best for us and that we are in his will, his will being protecting us, his will being pursuing us. And so we can't just long for the things he has, but we need to long for him himself, that we love the giver more than the gift. And lastly, the will of God is perfecting you. The will of God is perfecting you, perfecting you. Look with me in verse 18 again. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. Underline that word, first fruits of his creatures. What James is, is likening, there, or what James is communicating to us in this verse is that by God's own will, by his own pleasure, he brought us forth from death, not just so that we could be alive, but that we could be a different kind of alive, that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creature, of his creatures, that, that we wouldn't just be risen from the dead, but we would be new, that we would be made new. And how do we accomplish this? How is the will of God perfecting you Today, he dives into that in verse 22. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts... He will be blessed in his doing. How is the will of God perfecting you? It's in his word, man. The will of God is found in his word. Not that in the same way, not that we would just be made alive, but we would be made new. That not that we would just read the word of God and come on Sundays and say, I've got my fill, man. I heard Romans 8.28, so I can say that all week and know that he's working all things together for good, but I'm still going to get mad about stuff this week. It's that we don't just hear the word, but we do the word. And in the process of doing the word, we are perfected and made more like Jesus. James is using an illustration here that's very similar to what his brother Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, if any man hears my words and does not do them, 
He is like a man who builds his house on the sand. If he does do them, he's like a man who builds his house on the rock. James's illustration is a little bit different, but it's kind of similar. He's saying, if you are a hearer of the word but not a doer, you're basically like someone who looks in a mirror and forgets what he saw the moment he walks away, who looks at truth and then in a moment forgets about anything that truth has to deal with in their lives, forgets about everything that is related to truth. God's will is perfecting us in how we spend time in his word. Romans 12.2 clarifies it for us a little bit like this. You've probably heard this passage, but I'm going to read it in a little bit different of a context. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is writing to the Romans and saying that, as Alistair Begg is a preacher I look up to, he says that the Christian faith engages our minds. doesn't allow our minds to fossilize is how he says it, but he says it in a Scottish accent, so it's amazing. The guy could read the phone book, and it's a blessing. But what he's saying there is that the Christian faith engages our minds. And Paul is saying that in Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that we can engage God's word and grow in our minds and constantly renew our mind by looking at his word and then applying it so we can know what the will of God is. So we can know what the will of God is and what is perfect and acceptable and pleasing to him. John Piper has a quote and he says it this way. He says, It is not plain, therefore, there is one great task of the Christian life. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need new hearts and new minds. Make the tree good and the fruit will be good. That is the great challenge. This is what God calls you to, and you cannot do it on your own. You need Christ, who died for your sins, and you need the Holy Spirit to lead you into Christ-exalting truth and to work in you truth-embracing humility. Give yourself to this. Immerse yourself in the written word of God. Saturate your mind with it. And pray that the Spirit of Christ would make you so new that the spillover would be good, acceptable, and perfect. The will of God. The will of God. The will of God is pursuing us, man. The will of God is protecting us. And the will of God is perfecting us. What is the application for the fact that that He is perfecting us through the midst of His Word? It's as simple as this. The will of God is the Word of God. The will, God's word is his will, excuse me. God's word is his will. That we would go to his word, that we would dig in the scriptures and consume them like they were food, man. That we would meditate on them day and night. The psalmist says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and the scriptures. On that law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree who is planted by living streams of water and all that he does he prospers and his leaf will not wither. That's us when we desire and long for the word of God. When we allow it to work in our hearts and that the will of God is perfecting us through that. And so the big idea for today's sermon, the one that you scratched out there at the very beginning, it ultimately boils down to this. That God's will for your life is to know Christ and to be like him. God's will for your life is to know Christ and to be like him, man. 
It's not this vast list of things that God has for our lives, whether it's a house or a car or a fence or a boat. I don't, I don't care what it is. It's not a list. It's not solely for your advantage. It's not avoidable for the believer, but it's pursuing us. It's protecting us, and it's perfecting us. And it starts with our resurrection into life, and it continues all throughout eternity as we become more like Christ. God's will for your life is to know Christ and to be like him, and to be like him. And so on a more practical level, I want to give you guys four things that you can look at. Maybe you're asking, Tyler, I have a promotion that's coming up at work, or they're asking me to move across the state lines. How do I know if this is God's will for my life in a practical sense? I know the generalized area that God's, God's purpose, God's plan, his pleasure for my life is that I know Christ and that I am like him, but what do I do about this situation? Well, I have four questions that you can ask yourself. Is this the will of God for my life? And you can run this through, and this might help you out a little bit. Number one, is it for the glory of God, or is it just for your good? Is it for the glory of God, or is it just for your good? Analyze that, man. Take time to chew on that. Maybe that trip is something that is just for your good, or it can bring God glory. I'm going to move forward. The second question, have you consulted other believers We've said this often and time and time again from this pulpit. The Christian faith knows nothing of lone wolf Christians, man. It knows nothing of people who fly solo. Going to see that movie this month because it's going to be great. But the Christian faith knows nothing of a rogue believer. That we don't hear the word and the, vo- and the voice of God and just consult ourselves alone in our bedroom and assume that we have it together. I have a great illustration about that. That's not going to fit in the time that we have, so just talk to me afterwards. It's really hilarious. The third one that you can deal with, the question that you can ask is, does it make me more like Christ? If God's will is for me to know him and to be more like Christ, does this situation in my life make me more like Christ? And lastly, man, is it in his word? Is it in his word? Paul said in Romans 12 too, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and know the will of God? Is it in his word? Some of you may ask me, is this the will of God for my life? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that the will of God is very clear in his word. That he wants you to know Christ and he wants you to be more like him. The band is going to come up and lead us in a time of response. And I've got three last things for you of what now? What do we do now? We know that God's will is pursuing us. It's protecting us. And it is perfecting us. He's doing it through his will. He's done it through his son. He's done it as he's risen us from the dead. So what now? First of all, it's just real simple. Stop overthinking it. Stop overthinking it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Just a big word for being made more like Jesus. This is the will of God, that you would know him, and that you would be like him. Stop overthinking it. The will of God is not this great ethereal mystery that you have to grasp or stand inside of a dot to achieve. It's in his word, man. It's in this book. Consume it as though it were food. Secondly, start applying it. Start applying it. Do not be doer, do not be hearers of the word only, but be doers of God's word. As we come and look at his scriptures, we see the importance and the value that God's word says in Psalm 119 that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Start applying it in your life. Start applying it. And lastly, surrender to it.
surrender to the will of God. Jesus was talking to a group of fellows in John chapter 6, and they were asking him, who sent you? This all comes back to Christ, man. From the mouth of Christ, we hear the will of God. Why don't you stand to your feet as I read this passage from John chapter 6. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And then I will raise him up on the last day. The will of God is pursuing you protecting you and perfecting you and God's will for your life is not this crazy, far outreaching truth that you just have to listen hard enough to hear, but it's right here in his book. It's right here in his word that the will of God for your life is to know Christ and to be like him, to constantly become more like him. And we can reflect on how we are made more like him and how he pursues us. What better way than being reminded by taking communion together and coming and seeing the body and the blood of Jesus broken on our behalf. Before we do this, Jesus' disciples once asked him how to pray. He said, teach us to pray. There's a line in there that stood out for me this week more than it ever has that it's not God's plan for our life, but it's his pleasure. That his will is his pleasure and his desire. So we're going to read the Lord's Prayer aloud together, and then we'll respond in communion, and the band will lead us in a time of response. And as we read this aloud together, I want you to focus and think on these words that they came from the mouth of God. That in humility and in surrender, he said, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Let's read the Lord's Prayer aloud together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for a subject that could be so vague at some times where we think that we don't understand it when we ask what is the will of God and we may not even understand the answer, but I'm thankful for your will, for your pleasure. That it is not this far outreaching thing that that I have to do anything to achieve or to understand, but by grace you reveal it to me in your word. But the will of God, the pleasure of God is that we would know Jesus and be more like him. That we would live our lives for our Father in heaven. That his kingdom would come and his will, his pleasure would be done here in my life, here on earth as it is in heaven. Remind us of these things. Help us as we respond. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Come forward and respond in communion as you feel led.